Let me say a prayer for us and we'll just dive right in. Lord, thank you so much for this evening and for bringing us together. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have and the freedom that we have in this country to gather together. Father, we know that this time in history is, uh, is not the norm. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your blessings. We pray for guidance for our leaders, that you turn all the hearts of the leaders of our nation and of those of the world, that you turn them toward you. We thank you for all that you give us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, those of you coming in, just come on in and make yourself comfortable. And we are going to uh, continue our series of From Failure to Faithful, We're kind of modeling it on the life of Peter. And this letter, 1 Peter, is one that he wrote near the end of his life. There's our number for questions. As we uh, go through the class, you want to text those in during class, we'll answer the ones that we can. Well, let me remind you where we are. I'll take our map here and let me just remind you of the time frames briefly. Basically, you have the cross of Christ, about 33, we'll just call it 33 AD. And then Peter ministered in the area of Palestine, a market on our map just to kind of give us a geographic idea of how far his ministry went. At some point, he must have ministered up here in Turkey because that is, those are the recipients of the letter of 1 Peter, or the people that live in that massive area. So he must have ministered to the churches there. And then at some point, he goes to Rome, to the church there, and we know that he was crucified there by the Emperor Nero, we'll call it around 67 AD. So you see kind of the ministry and the life of Peter. Well, when he wrote the letter of 1 Peter, he is uh, going to talk about a lot of topics. You've got to think about him writing this maybe 65 AD, so a couple of years before he dies. We, don't, we can't be sure about that, but pretty sure that he's writing it um, from Rome, and he wasn't in Rome that long, it doesn't appear. So he's probably writing it a couple of years before he's executed there. He's writing it back with the perspective of someone who began their ministry with a failure of his faith and who will end it with uh, a successful faith, a faith that was true to the end. And he's writing to the Christians in Turkey, Asia Minor is what the Romans called that area, and he's gonna talk to them about, prepare them for some of the difficulties of the Christian life. And so in this lesson, we are going to basically, Peter is going to answer a couple of questions for us when he talks about hardships or trials or suffering. We want to talk about these two questions. Why does God allow suffering, particularly for Christians, in the sense that when you stop and think about it, is if you believe that the wrath of God rightfully falls on all of us who have been in rebellion, it's not really a surprise that in a fallen world that our own sin causes human suffering, but you think those who are followers of Christ might think, well, perhaps God will protect us from suffering. So why does God allow suffering, particularly for Christians? What purpose can there be in suffering? And Peter's going to address that question because he wants to prepare them. The second thing that I just find really interesting, Jesus told his followers, that we would face hardships and trouble and challenges and difficulties in this life, why did people follow Jesus anyway? And if you think about it, Jesus was not a very good marketer, nor did he want to be a good marketer. He said, in this world you'll have trouble. 
but I've overcome the world. He said, they hated me, they'll hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And yet, people followed him. Why? Peter's going to address some of those questions. So let's walk through the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, and then we'll come back around to these questions and see how he's answered them. The passage starts this way. It's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water on the ark, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. I'd like to highlight a couple of things in this passage, and we'll start right in immediately to these, some of the principles of this idea. So if you look here, it's really interesting. He begins with this. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why is that in this passage about suffering? And I would suggest to you that he's saying something really profound there. He's saying because of what Christ did, of dying for sin once for all, that changed the perspective on suffering. In fact, I'd summarize it this way. Because Christ suffered and overcame sin on our behalf, suffering no longer has the last word for us. And if you stop and think about it, big picture in the Bible, let me just give you the big picture and we'll come down to the small one. God creates a world that's good, Genesis chapter 1. In it, he puts humanity and he says, I've given you useful work to do, you can rule over this, you can multiply. In other words, you can fill the earth. This is a utopian existence. This is the Garden of Eden. God is walking with humanity. Humanity rebels, believe the lie and disobey God and, and sin. And so you have sin and death enters the world. And from that time on, from that time on, everyone goes through the door of death. Everyone will die. It's not the original intention of God. It's something that's introduced into the world by sin and rebellion. So death and the consequent fear of death and suffering, if you stop and think about it, a lot of the things that we do to each other are very much motivated because of this idea of death, that we're so finite beings here on earth. Jesus changes that equation. He comes in and says, instead of the hopelessness of you will live for a certain amount of years, you will suffer, and then you will die. He says, I have overcome sin and death itself by the resurrection. Jesus changed the equation. Well, that changes the equation for suffering. And that suffering, which beforehand had no point or purpose, it was just one of those inevitable bad things about life, Jesus changes it so that suffering does not have the last word. It's not the final thing. In other words, eternity begins to open up 
not just suffering and death. Changes the perspective on suffering. So Peter puts that right up front in this passage so that we'll know that Christ died once for all for sins, and that changes the equation about suffering. I thought while we were here, some of you like me were kind of Church of Christ background, probably looking at this going, hey, I remember this passage. We are saved through baptism, saved through the water, if you will. He's going to use this idea because if you think about it, Jesus in the Great Commission said, I want you to go baptize people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a sense of how we're translated out of the futility of this temporal life into the blessings of Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans talks about, don't you know that when you were baptized with Christ, you were buried with him in death, and then you were raised to walk in a newness of life. And Peter, again, interprets that here. And he says, what Jesus did, our transformation from death to life, has put suffering in a completely different perspective. It doesn't change the fact that we'll all have difficulties in life. Some of them self create And by the way, Peter's talking about all kinds of trials and difficulties, not just persecution, but the inevitable difficulties of decaying bodies, the mortality of our bodies. But he said Jesus changed that equation. And he highlights at the end, he makes a point of saying that Jesus is in heaven and he has authority over everything. In other words, he is victorious. Which brings me to the second point that I want us to file away is that Christ's victory over sin and death is key to making sense out of suffering because it introduces the idea of hope. You'll see this word hope of salvation, hope of eternal life in the New Testament all the time. And it doesn't mean hope as in, boy, I just really sure hope that happens. I don't think it will. Hope meaning there's now a way for this to happen. Those in Christ have a confident expectation that we will live an eternal life, that our bodies will be remade, that all of creation will be healed and brought back to its original state of goodness. In other words, now the suffering that used to be the end, I mean, you just you can't avoid it and there's no point to it, is cast into a bigger world because Jesus triumphed over our sin, but sin in general, and death itself, suffering now no longer has the last word, and we begin to be able to make a little bit of sense of suffering. Well, he goes on and he says this, therefore, since Christ suffered in this body, arm yourselves, that's a military term, by the way, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is finished with sin. That's an interesting thing. I want to come back to that. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgeries, carousing, idolatry, and they think it's strange that you do not participate with them in the same flood of dissipation, and they abuse you because of it. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in the spirit. 
This is a really interesting thing. Peter's giving us some real insights here into what's happened now on this side of the cross. The first thing he says, you notice, is this, is that since Christ suffered in his body, we should arm ourselves with the same attitude because he who has suffered is finished with sin. What an interesting thing to say. What does he mean by that? If we suffer, we won't commit any more sins. We know that's not the case. That can't be what he's talking about. What he's talking about, I'm going to suggest to you, is this. He's saying that suffering breaks the illusion that sin can make us happy. If you think about it, if you look at the world without Christ, you see a world in which you have a finite lifespan, you have some element of suffering, usually many things, whether it's broken relationships or addictions or trials in life or illness or any number of difficulties, and then death at the end. And so your view of life is, how then can I maximize my happiness? And sin promises happiness, whether it's self-centeredness, it's money, it's fame, it's power, it's lust, it's greed. Satan says, yes, life is bleak, but I can give you happiness. Sin promises happiness. And most of the time when you look down the path of sin, it looks pretty good for a little while. You just don't see what's around the bend. Suffering breaks that illusion. When we go through trials in life, particularly trials that are the result of our sin, we kind of wake up and we go, wait a minute, I don't think that's true. I think that's another lie, that sin can make me happy, whether it's money, fame, power, fill in the blank. All of those self-centered things cannot make us happy. And that's what he's saying. Those who have suffered are actually kind of free of the idea that I'll pursue these sinful things and they'll make me happy. One of the things suffering does is it breaks that illusion. It lets us see the world more clearly, that that is not the answer for our difficulties in life. It's a very interesting thing that he says. The next thing he says, this to me is also very interesting. Look at verse 4. He says, the people around you continue to pursue happiness, fulfillment, gratification through... And if you just debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, idolatry, in other words, they're worshiping at some temple of a god, whether it's the my almighty dollar bill or it's fulfilling my fleshly desires or it's having power over other people. That's what that list is all about. These people around you are still pursuing happiness in that way. Then they look at you, Peter says, and they think it's strange that you do not do these things with them. And as a result of it, they heap abuse on you. Interesting thing about this is he's basically saying we do not engage in the values of our society anymore. And suffering is one of our wake-up calls. When we suffer and we realize sin is a lie, it cannot provide the happiness that it promises, that we have broken this pattern and we can be done with sin. It doesn't mean done with sin as in that we'll never do anything wrong, but done with sin in the sense that we are no longer fooled by thinking that's the way to the good life. But there are people all around us who still think that's the way to the good life. 
And he says, we do not engage, we do not share in those values. And as a result of that, you will become different, and so you will be singled out. So I wanted to share with you something that I think is a little bit prophetic, is what was that like in uh, his day? This is a, a bust or a model of Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian, very interesting guy. He lived, as you can tell, right in this time period, 56 to 120, and he wrote a number of histories about Rome, about Roman emperors. He wrote about this exact time. He wrote about Nero. I think I quoted him in one of our lessons already about Nero persecuting the Christians and setting Rome on fire. But one of the things I wanted you to understand is how Christians face difficulty by not adopting the values of their culture, because there couldn't be a more immediate and practically applicable question. We find ourselves in exactly the same situation. More and more, even in our country, I'm not talking about China or North Korea, more and more, even in our country, as our paths diverge from our culture, our culture pursues happiness through all of those things that, that Peter mentioned, and we have broken that illusion that sin is the good life and we've said we will follow Christ. As we diverge, you begin to see that hostility that Peter was talking about. Sometimes we think that persecution just means imprisonment or torture or death and that happens some. Remember this is about 65 AD. Peter and Paul are both going to be executed, not for doing anything wrong, but for what they believe and what they taught, that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that wasn't hugely widespread in 65. Now fast forward 30 years to 95, when John, by the way, is writing the book of Revelation, kind of finishing up the Bible, very widespread persecution of that kind. But in 65 AD, you begin to see, as Peter's writing to them, the more prevalent kind of persecution. In those days, worshiping the gods of the culture holding the values of the culture was considered to be your civic duty. Well, Christians didn't worship the Roman gods. They wouldn't sacrifice at the temple. It's sort of like in that society, your religion and your patriotism were all put together. This is obviously not a perfect analogy, but think about it today as if somebody, an American citizen who said, I just won't do the Pledge of Allegiance. I will not pledge my allegiance to America. We would typically say, that's not exactly, you know, you're probably not gonna get Citizen of the Month award for that, right? Well, put that on steroids. That's what it was like in Rome, is if you were not willing to participate in the civic ceremonies to the gods, you were not thought of as being a very good citizen. And so, as Christians refused to adopt the idolatry of their culture. They became outcasts. Here's what he says. He calls them, he, uh, this is Tacitus recording this. He said, Christians were considered to be antisocial. They weren't antisocial because they weren't friendly. They didn't say hi to people. They wouldn't let somebody in on the interstate, you know, if you wanted to get in front of them. They're antisocial because they wouldn't participate in the civic religious thing. They wouldn't acknowledge the emperor as Lord. They acknowledge Christ as Lord, as my master, not the emperor. And so they were, people detested the Christians. And so the form that that took in 65 
was not so often that Christians were being killed. Christians just weren't being hired for jobs. Christians couldn't get into the local credit unions. Christians were being economically outcasts. They were social outcasts. And so you begin to see that in our culture as well. Uh, some of the language of our culture is that Christians are intolerant, uh, racist, homophobic. I mean, just start thinking of all of the adjectives that say you are outsiders. You are not like the mainstream of our culture. That's exactly the form that persecution took at, at the beginning. In fact, in the book of Revelation, John writes, in the end times, that's how persecution starts. It starts by economic and social ostracism and then turns into more violent persecution. So that's what was going on at that time. So it was persecution, not so much prison, but social and economic. By the way, kind of a side note, that is why Christians, I think that's why Jesus and why Christians throughout history have been very sensitive to people who are on the margins of society, the poor, the oppressed, people who are different, people who are outcast. Think about Jesus talking about what you did for the least of these, you've done for me. That's Jesus saying, go to the out outside of your culture. And Christians have always been interested in those who have been marginalized. In terms of freedom in our country and the ending of slavery, the ending of uh, civil rights, they're not entirely Christian, but those are fueled very much by Christian ideas because Christians are interested in those who are marginalized. And one of the reasons is Christians tend to be, at some point or another, marginalized in their societies. We happen to be in a little blip of history, and they've happened before, this isn't the first time it's happened, where Christianity in our country over the past 50 years or so has actually been a popular thing. It's becoming much less rather quickly now, and you begin to see Christians diverging, but there have always been times in history where culture and Christianity actually kind of moved along the same path for a while. And I think that's what Peter's talking to these people about. He says, you may be used to the idea of being comfortable, but now that you are on the radar, it's going to be more and more obvious that you do not do what the culture does, and they are going to heap abuse on you, to quote 1 Peter. And so he's preparing them for what has historically been the norm. We live in a historically unusual time. And the norm is typically what Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. They hated me, they will hate you, because you are not going to adopt the values of the society in which you live. Now Peter said, we're going to submit ourselves to the government and be good citizens within the parameters of what we are able to do. Christians wouldn't say that the emperor was God, they wouldn't worship idols, but in every other respect, they paid taxes. They were good citizens. They did everything that they could. So Christians weren't rebelling, but Christians began to look very different. In fact, I would argue historically that if Christians don't look different than the culture, there's something wrong with the church. In other words, we should look different. We're pursuing different goals and different aims. So our current era is not really the norm. And the fact that it's changing now, I would suggest to you, I know this may not comfort you very much, but the changes that are going on in our country 
and you see the increased hostility towards followers of Jesus Christ is a very predictable and very normal thing. I didn't say it was desirable. I just said, don't feel like, oh no, something really has gone wrong. Actually, things are going back to what Jesus said they would be. And that's exactly why Peter's writing this. He goes on from here, and he reminds us of something. And he brings in another really interesting perspective on suffering. Think about why does he move on and say this, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, and each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should speak as the very words of God. If you serve, serve with the strength God gives you, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Interesting perspective here. Why does he switch from suffering and the situation in which we find ourselves not adopting the values of our society and increasingly becoming separated from it? Why then does he skip and talk about, and by the way, don't forget, the end is near. We are in the end times. And I don't mean that as in I have a, have a secret insight that even Jesus didn't have that when the world's going to end. But once Jesus conquered sin and death, the end is inevitable. Sin and death are destroyed. Satan loses. We have the hope and the assurance of eternal life. That's what he means when he said we are in the end times. And consequently, live like you're in the end times. See the world as it really is. Don't get sucked into the lies of sin or to that short-term mentality. He's trying to give us a longer-term view. It's a great quote from Tom Schreiner says, the imminence of the end of time, in other words, that we are in the time where God is accomplishing his purposes, should function as a stimulus to act in the world. The knowledge that believers are sojourners and exiles whose time is short should galvanize us to make our lives count now. What he's saying is, basically, we see the world as it really is. You've got the rest of the world seeing their lives of 70 years of suffering and strife and grab what you can. Christians see beyond that. We understand this is not all that there is. Consequently, instead of withdrawing, Jesus said we need to be about the Father's business while we can. And so we have this opportunity, and it should galvanize us to action. Suffering looks completely different when viewed from an eternal perspective. And this is one of the keys. Christ's victory over sin and death changes the perspective on suffering. It doesn't have the last word anymore. We will, will we suffer? Undoubtedly. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that it is necessary for us to have trials and difficulties and hardships. But it does not have the last word. Because when you look at this from an eternal perspective, suffering now becomes some small portion of our existence, not the final, you suffer, you die, that's it, death has won. This idea of being in the end times and having eternal life really changes the perspective. And it changes our perspective in an interesting way. Let me go back and tell you, look, look what he's got in this passage on suffering. He talks about this. This is one of my favorite passages, by the way. 1 Peter 4.8. Love each other deeply 
because love covers a multitude of sins. He's basically referring there to Proverbs 10, 12. It said, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over a multitude of sins. What does he mean? He meant basically, instead of responding with the hatred from the culture, with hatred in return, that we'll respond with love. How can we do that? We can only do that because we understand that this is a blip in eternity. The world has a very hard time forgiving, has a very hard time loving because you only have this much time. You need to get everything that you can out of it. And it's a zero-sum game. Anything you get, your rights, if they get in the way of my happiness, they have to be squashed because this is my only chance. Christians say, I see this from the perspective of eternity, and I can afford to love in response to hate instead of hating back. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That makes no sense if all you have is this life. If all you have is this life, you need to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. But if you see the perspective of eternity, Jesus says, trust me. I will give you hope and you will live with me in eternity. For this period of time, you can now afford to return love for hatred. That's why Jesus says what he does. Makes no sense from a secular worldview. Makes all the sense in the world for a Christian. He goes on, he says this. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials that you are suffering. As though the try and try word trials there can mean not just sickness or illness, any kind of hurdles you face in life, any kind of thing that happens to you because of Christ, anything that happens to you because we live in a fallen world and just bad things happen, tornadoes happen, earthquakes happen, sickness happens. He said, don't be surprised. That's part of this world. He said, don't think something strange is happening. So you've got this idea that we've lived in a nice little cocoon. And as we go back to more difficulties with our culture, he's saying, don't be surprised. That's not strange. He said, don't feel like something weird is happening to you. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his uh, glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or other kind of criminal, even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who don't obey? In other words, there is judgment coming. And if it is hard for even the righteous to be saved, then what about the ungodly and the sinners? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So let's talk about that passage just a little bit. He says, first of all, don't be surprised. And you know, it, the great thing about that is Jesus told us that this would happen. Again, the only reason that you and I might be surprised is we happen to be coming out of a generation where we didn't really experience much persecution. You read this in North Korea, you read this in China, and they go, we're not surprised, it's been that way all of our life. There's always been a high price to pay for being a Christ follower. We haven't had, traditionally, by and large, in America, to pay a price for being a Christ follower. 
So we might be surprised, and that's one of the reasons I like this letter. I want us to be reminded. Peter's saying, don't be surprised. This is not strange. This is a normal thing. He talks about trials. Don't be surprised at the painful trials. James speaks about the same thing. Remember James chapter 1? He says, you should rejoice whenever you encounter various trials and difficulties because the trials produce perseverance and perseverance perfects your faith. He's saying the same thing. Verse 13, rejoice when you participate in the sufferings of Christ. That also makes no sense in a secular world. Suffering, difficulties, hardships, bankruptcies, illnesses are things to be avoided. In fact, our entire culture will do anything to avoid suffering. It's not meaningful. It's not helpful. It is all bad, and we should avoid it, whether that's through drugs or uh, fear of death or oppressing other people. I mean, whatever it takes will avoid suffering. If you think that this is all there is, is this life you have, that's a very reasonable way to look at it. But the Bible, Jesus, James, Peter can all say, you can rejoice in difficulties. Why? Because when you view it from the, the perspective of eternity, you realize that God can even make that meaningful and that you will participate in the sufferings of Christ. That idea of participating in the sufferings of Christ is a strong idea through the New Testament. Let me show you a passage in Philippians chapter 3. Now this is Paul speaking. So we've heard from James, heard from Peter, from Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Of course, he gave up his family, he gave up his career, he gave up all of his friends, he gave up his safety, he gave up his comfort, he gave up his 401k, he gave up everything. He says, you know what, I consider all of that nothing. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having some righteousness of my own that comes from law or good behavior, but that which is through trust in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Again, think you're seeing this whole eternal perspective that death is not the end. Suffering doesn't have the last word. He said, I want to participate in his resurrection, live eternally, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so to attain the resurrection from the dead. Christians before us have had a really strong idea, and it's all through the New Testament, that when we suffer, we are participating with Christ. Think about the goal of the Christian life. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. In other words, the Holy Spirit in us is turning us into Jesus Christ. We become holier and holier, meaning we become more and more like Christ. We more and more love our enemies. We more and more have compassion for people who don't deserve it. We begin to look like Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening with us. So Christians throughout all of history have understood that as we suffer, 
we're becoming more like Christ. It was necessary for Christ to suffer so that sin and death could be defeated. And as we suffer, we participate. You saw Paul saying, I consider all this trials and difficulties I've had, that's nothing compared to getting to participate in the sufferings of Christ and be like him. I think I told you this story from uh, the book of Acts early on. Peter and John are called in before the Jewish authorities and they beat them up, tell them you can't preach this Jesus anymore. And they leave and they are rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In other words, they understood this idea of participating like Christ in suffering. So suffering to the early church and Christians throughout history has really, in some interesting way, made us more like Christ. We get to live the life that Christ lived. And if Paul said, argues this, he said, if I suffer the way he suffered, I'll also be resurrected the way he's resurrected. In other words, I want to be like Christ in every respect and want to be with him forever. In other words, surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. This is a beautiful passage. He also says in uh, 2 Corinthians, this is Paul again writing, listen to what he writes to the people there who are undergoing, by the way, he's written about the same time, undergoing the same kind of economic persecution, kind of social outcast. You Christians are just not like everybody else. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. And we always carry in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made real in our bodies. Do you see what he's saying there? He said all of these difficulties that happen to us, he said none of them can have the last word. In other words, we're pressed, but we're not destroyed because we see this through the lens of eternity. Suffering does not have the last word. And even more than that, he said, if we suffer like Christ, we're going to be raised like Christ. In other words, we want to be like him in every respect. That's something I think we've kind of lost. I mean, our culture says suffering's bad. For Christians, we go, wait a minute, my Lord suffered. Every one of these apostles suffered, had difficulty for Christ. Maybe in my suffering, that's part of me becoming like Christ. I know that when... I was early in my faith. I thought, okay, becoming like Christ meant behaving better. In other words, I'll start doing the things he did. I'll be nicer to people. You know, I'll give more money. I'll try to work in the community. I'll try to do the social deeds that Jesus did, and that's a good thing. I'll try to believe the truth that Jesus said. I'll try to do the things he did. I'll try to be like him in every respect, but it never occurred to me until later, and you begin to read the New Testament, that even the difficulties in my life are part of becoming like Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about suffering that way, but the New Testament talks about it like that all the time. Like, of course you're going to suffer. You want to be like Christ, don't you? Then it's necessary to go through some of that hardship. So that's the way the New Testament talks about it. Suffering is a participation with Christ. It is a normal part of becoming like Christ. Now, you and I might say, gosh, is there a plan B? Is there another way? Can I shortcut this? And the Bible says, no, it's, it's actually part of being like Christ. You, you wanted to be like Christ, didn't you? Well, come on. 
And Jesus said, you want to follow me? It's going to be a hard road, but take heart. My father's house has many rooms. You see, you see why Jesus keeps pointing to the future and is realistic about what we'll face? He's saying, you need to look at this. Do you really believe that I am who I say I am and I can do what I say I can do? And if your answer is yes, then he says, then come with me. Follow me. And follow me means follow me through the difficulties of life all the way to the joys of heaven. Suffering is a participation with Christ. Interesting thing here is he talks about this idea that when this happens to you, I think this is a really interesting thing he says. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, by the way, that's only three times is that word used in the New Testament, Christian. I'll tell you where that comes from. This is just a fun fact that, to amaze your friends at parties. Okay, so in Latin, in Roman uh, culture, when you were adopted into a family, and this happened a lot, by the way, but when you were adopted into a family, they would take your the name of the person you were adopted into the family and they'd add that I-A-N-U-S on the end of it. So for example, if Emperor Domitian adopted you into his family, which happened, I mean, the next emperor was usually adopted by the previous emperor so that you're sort of passing it down to your quote, adopted son, You'd, you would add to your name Domitianus. In other words, adopted into the family of Domitian. The Latin word for Christians is Christianus. You've been adopted into the family of this Christ. This is apparently your Lord. This is your patron. And so that's where the word Christian comes from. But it's only used three times. He says, so if you suffer because you've been adopted into the family of Jesus Christ, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Isn't that interesting? He said, you should, when that happens, be thankful that you're in this family. What do we do in this family, Dad? Well, we have difficulty in life because, son, we don't look like this world. This isn't our ultimate home. And he says, so when that suffering happens, that's a sign to you that you should praise God that you are part of the family. Who disciplines kids that aren't their own? Well, okay, I yell for kids to get off my yard. Fair enough. You know, like, hey, get out of my yard. But basically, when you have kids over, you don't discipline the kids that aren't yours. You discipline the kids that are your children. That's what he's saying. When you suffer like Christ suffers, you need to praise God that you get to be in this family. That's part of what it means. So you see, really talking about suffering in a very different way than what we're used to seeing it. Here's Paul talking about it this way. 2 Corinthians, the second letter he wrote to Corinth, and he's talking about some suffering in his life. By the way, most scholars believe, nobody knows what this thorn in the flesh is, but most people believe that his eyesight's failing. And so he's a preacher, and he's becoming blind. This is not good for your career, right? So he prays to God. Here's what he says. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these great things that are happening, a messenger of Satan tormented me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. It could have been illness. Not sure what it was. He said, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He said, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties, because when I am weak, then I am strong. What an interesting perspective. Think about that. He said, I told God, take this away. And God said, son, this is what happens in our family. And he said, well, in that case, I'm going to praise God that I'm in this family. In other words, God can take my weaknesses, my difficulties, my persecutions, my hardships, all the things that happen to you and me, he says, and when those things happen, that's proof that you are very strong, that you are in the family. What a really different point of view. You see how radically different Christians think about these suffering and these difficulties? Suffering forces us to rely on Christ, not on ourselves. And it's a sign that we're participating with Christ in his suffering. It's a sign from us that, that we are part of the family of God. Radically different view of suffering. Let me pause there and see what questions we have. Well, we just have one, and it goes back um, kind of to the beginning of the lesson, but Paul and Peter were both killed in Rome. Mm -hmm. Do you know um, how much time there was between their deaths and then... What was the atmosphere in Rome at that time? Would Christians have known about their deaths? Would it have been a, a yeah. fearful time? Yeah, good question. The death of, you know that uh, from church tradition that Nero executed both Peter and Paul different ways because Paul was a Roman citizen, Peter was not. We don't know uh, how close in time that they were. We don't know if they were in cells next to each other and got to talk to each other. We definitely know that they know about each other. I mean, Peter, in the second letter of Peter, talks about Paul and all the letters that he's written as scripture. In fact, he calls it scripture. And so they know each other. They probably met there. It just seems very likely that they were able to at least contact each other. So they're probably killed relatively close because if First Peter's written about 65, he's killed about 67. Everybody thinks Paul's killed around the same time. The reason is Nero killed himself in 68. So probably around the same time. What would the uh, atmosphere have been there? It would have been very fearful, like, oh, it looks like the Roman Empire is not just, we're not just social outcasts. They've decided now that we need to be killed. Do you remember, Je by the way, this is a great connection. Do you remember Jesus telling his disciples they had no way to understand what he meant? This is back in 30 AD. We're here in 65, 67 with Peter's death. When he told Peter and the disciples, he said, the day is coming when people will kill you and think they're doing a good thing. And they had to have been thinking, that doesn't make any sense at all. And here's Peter at the end of his life, and the church realizes this is exactly what Jesus said. These Romans are killing us, and they think they're doing a good thing by their standards and by their gods and by their system of thinking. So it would have, in one sense, encouraged people to say, are, what, Jesus meant what he said, and he said exactly what would happen. It would have encouraged them that they saw Peter and Paul being faithful, even to death. In other words, they did exactly what Jesus did. They suffered and they died because they followed Christ. It actually encouraged and emboldened Christians. Now, many Christians left Rome because of that. Christians weren't necessarily eager to line up and say, hey, kill me next, kill me next. But they were emboldened by their faith because they believed. 
that there's more than just this life. And when they see that happen to Peter and Paul, they were encouraged. In fact, martyrs throughout the next, actually the whole 2,000 years of the church, have always encouraged Christians. They see real faith like that put into practice. It's a faith that we're not all called on to make. We're not all called to die for our beliefs. But when you see people do it, you go, yes, that's the faith that I want. I want that kind of trust in Christ. So Christians left Rome. A lot of Christians left Rome. Many stayed and just continued their house churches and continued evangelizing. Uh, but it was actually encouraging to them. And martyrs have always been encouraging to the church. Well, let's go back to our two questions then. First, why does God allow suffering, particularly for Christians? What purpose could there be? Hopefully by now you kind of realize that actually trials are essential for faith formation. Trials are essential. In other words, suffering doesn't have the last word. To secular people, suffering is meaningless. To Christians, it's like, it's not meaningless at all. In fact, it's a way of participating. It's a way of becoming like Christ. It's a way of breaking my illusion of sin, that sin cannot make me happy. It is a way of realizing that only in trials does my faith actually get stronger. We all know that experientially. The good times in our lives are usually not. The easy times, that's not usually when we grow spiritually. It's when something happens and it makes us rely on God. There's a great sign going into Canicut camps. I saw this many years ago when we uh, would drop our kids off, and I love this sign. It said, faith is not faith until it's all you're holding on to. And you know, that's what hardships and difficulties do to us. Sometimes we're holding on to our security blankets. We're holding on to our 401k. We're holding on to our job. We're holding on to a lot of things, our good health. And then all of a sudden, trials come and it rips those things away from us. And that's when we realize what faith really is, that we rely on Christ. Uh, ben Sass, you may have heard of, of him, he's a senator from Nebraska. He just released a book called The Vanishing American Adult. And one of the tenets of this book, he's basically, it's a great book. I haven't finished it yet, but really good book. It's a commentary on American culture and the idea that adolescence has extended so long that kids really have a hard time becoming adults in the sense that we understand it. And he says one of the reasons for that is we have sheltered our children from trials and difficulties, from failure, from some suffering. In other words, we've basically given them all trophies just for showing up. You know, that really we should have some hard times. Most of us look back at early jobs we had and thought, man, I worked so hard in that, but we look back fondly and go, and I learned so much out of it. He says one of the reasons that Americans, kids are having a hard time really reaching responsible adulthood is that we've taken all the hardship and difficulties out of their life. Hardship and difficulty is essential to forming faith. That's why God allows it, because faith is what matters. We are saved by grace through trust. We don't know how much we trust Christ until difficulties force us to come face to face with our faith. Think about Peter. He came face to face with his moment of faith when Jesus was arrested and he realized, I don't trust him 
to death. And then later at the end of his life, he came face to face with death and realized his faith was strong because of the difficulties that he had faced. God uses these difficulties to make us like Christ and then welcomes us into heaven. Suffering is essential for forming faith. Second question, Jesus said we would face hardships and trouble in this life. Why did people follow him anyway? That is actually a very good question because sometimes we think that we follow Jesus so our lives will be better. Now, that's true in a lot of ways. Jesus said, I came to give you life. In fact, I came to give you the full life. He didn't say, I came to give you the prosperous life, came to give you the life without trouble. In fact, he said the exact opposite of that. He said, I came to give you the full life. I came to give you eternal life. I came to give you a community like you've never known. I came to give you a feeling of being loved and forgiven like you've never felt before. That's what he's talking about. But if we base our trust in Christ on him making us have a better life, we will not persevere. Because when suffering happens, then we turn to God and go, you haven't made my life better. Look at Peter, look at Paul. If their faith had been based on Jesus is gonna take care of me and make my life better, does that last? No. People follow Jesus because it's true, not just because he can make our lives better. Peter and Paul and every Christ follower who's ever lived follows Jesus Christ because it's true. We believe that we were under a death sentence from sin, that sin promised happiness and could deliver nothing but suffering and death. We believe that. We believe that Jesus, once and for all, died on the cross for our sins and broke that pattern of sin and death. We believe he was raised from the dead and we will live with him forever in eternity. We believe that even here in this life, that it is true that we are reconciled with God. We have peace with God. He loves us. He cares for us. He will make even our suffering make us more like Christ. We believe that is true. That's why people follow Jesus Christ. Not from any gain, not from any making my life better. It will be in many respects, but there are no guarantees that we won't also suffer. We follow Christ because it is true. So when that happens, we can follow him for good or bad. If we follow Christ for what we get from him, we'll follow him as long as it's good. And then when difficulties come, we'll fade away. If we follow him because that is true. Remember when he said to his disciples, when his teaching, a lot of people said, boy, I just can't accept your teaching. And John chapter 6 said a lot of people quit following him. And he turned to his disciples and he said, what about you? Are you also going to leave? And Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. What's Peter saying? He said, we believe this is true. Why would we leave? Just because it's hard. That's why people follow Jesus Christ, is because it's true. Finally, I'm going to leave you with this thought as you think about difficulties. He says, those who suffer should commit themselves to their faithful creator. There's a neat little play on that. Where I want to tell you where that comes from, that we should commit ourselves when we suffer to Christ. We should commit ourselves to our creator. I want to take you back to something Jesus said on the cross. If you remember in Luke chapter 23, 
Jesus said before he died, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is picking up on that. And they're both referring back to one of the Psalms. Every night, the last prayer you pray for observant Jews is they pray this line out of Psalm 31. It's verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, my faithful God. Because you see, Jews believe that when you went to sleep at night, your soul's gone. And it's only because God restores your soul to you in the morning that you wake up. And so they prayed this, as I go to sleep, I commit my spirit to you. I trust you with my very soul, my very life. And they believe that God gave them life back in the morning. It's a beautiful picture, if you will. Jesus was saying when on that cross, he said, through all this suffering and anything that happened to me, I'm about to go into hell with all the sins of the earth on my shoulder, and I commit my spirit to you. And that's what Peter says. He says, when you suffer and you face hardships, you commit your spirit to the God who's able to cause you to persevere, to the God that will bring you through every difficulty, and not only bring you through it, will make you more like Christ because of it. I hope that helps you as we to rethink difficulties and trials in our lives because no one in the world, no one in the history of the world except followers of Christ have ever thought of suffering this way. You are unique in how you view it and the world is going to notice that even in your trials, you can rejoice at the name of Jesus Christ knowing that your God has a purpose in this and he will see us through, and we will commit our spirits to him. So as you face difficulties in life, I just really want to encourage you in your prayers, think about it in that way, and then I think we can begin to rejoice even in our sufferings, as strange as that sounds. Make sense? Next time, we'll finish our study. Peter, he's already talked to husbands and wives, He's talked about slavery. He's talked about citizenship. He wants to talk to young people and old people in the church. And he has some pretty interesting things to say to both. Then he's going to talk about humility. He's going to tell you how to get rid of your anxiety. And he's going to tell you what to do about the devil. So we'll do that next time. Thanks, guys.